welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. James's Does Consciousness Exist? Part two. Are you just are you just trying to dodge this one? You're just trying to get us. I kind of am. I'm kind of trying to avoid talking about this because I find it so baffling. Okay, so maybe I should just take the bull by the motherfucking horns here. Okay, one of my favorite lines in this is uh right at the beginning. He says, to deny plumply. And I love that, to deny plumply. Yeah. That consciousness exists seems so absurd on the face of it, for undeniably thoughts do exist, that I fear some readers will follow me no farther. Let me then immediately explain that I mean only to deny that the word stands for an entity, but to insist most emphatically that it does stand for a function. There is, I mean, no aboriginal stuff or quality of being contrasted with that of which material objects are made, out of which our thoughts of them are made. But there is a function in experience which thoughts perform, and for the performance of which this quality of being is invoked. Well, this is getting a little hard to read. That's the sense I read many times over. He says that function is knowing. So he's saying basically there is actually only one thing. We're very used to dividing the universe into two things, the subject side and the object side. I'm sitting here staring at this microphone. I am having a subjective experience of an objective phenomenon. The microphone is objective and my experience of it is subjective. And James means to say, no, actually there's only one thing, which is the pure experience. And that pure experience splits off into two parts. He calls that diremption. And the two parts are like, on the one hand, the object can function as a thing in my field of consciousness, you know, if we want to use that word, right? Right. No, I think but then sense, at the yeah. same time, it functions as something that exists in its, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. This is why I, I am avoiding trying to talk about this, because the moment... I try to express what this diremption is, the split into two different aspects of pure experience, the subject side and the object side. And he says, basically, everything there is gets counted twice. It gets counted once as a subject and a second time as an object. But it's really just one thing. We're talking about different, he says, takings of the same phenomenon, and that phenomenon is pure experience. Oh, I find that idea really hard to express. I find yeah. the idea makes sense now that I've read this essay God knows how many times. But I don't, you know, it's funny. I remember when I first, the first time I came back from college, I went back home to Toronto and I had just had my first semester studying piano at the IU School of Music. This is long before it was the Jacobs School of Music. And I remember talking to my high school piano teacher, Marietta Orlov, and I was trying to explain these new musical concepts I was working on, and I just couldn't do it. It was very clear to my mind, but I couldn't express it. And she was like, well, that means you don't really know them. She's like, the point at which you really understand them is the point at which you'll be able to talk about them. And I've always thought that that's true, that there is a kind of an insecure middle term of knowing where in your own head, while you're reading these sentences, the sentences are forming patterns, and those patterns have a certain consistency. It's like tumblers of a lock clicking in a place, like it works in your head. But that's an intermediate position of thought because all of that turns into vague, diaphanous nothings when you try to find words for it. And that's how I feel with this idea of pure experience. I get it on some level, but I can't express it, which means that I don't really get it. I'll try to describe my interpretation of it or the way I understood it, and maybe we'll meet somewhere. So he plays a trick on the reader in this essay, and he admits that later on. He starts by saying... The stuff of all existence, the basic stuff is what he calls pure experience. But then at the end of the essay, he counters the objection, the natural objection that 
a lot of people have was like, well, what is pure experience if not consciousness, right? And he says, although for fluency's sake, I myself spoke early in this article of a stuff of pure experience, I have now to say that there is no general stuff of which experience at large is made. There are as many stuffs as there are natures in the things experienced. Then at the end of the essay, so he's basically saying that this stuff, that was just a placeholder concept. What he meant was, there is no basic stuff beyond what you see. If you're in a field looking at a house, you're looking at the whole thing. That is what the universe is made out of. The brick, the mortar, but also the houseness of the house. All that stuff is the fundamental material of experience. And it's only, it only manifests in particular occasions. You know, what Whitehead might call occasions of experience. So... There is no view from nowhere in James. And the problem is that whenever we read philosophy, we always assume that the person's talking about a view from nowhere. What James is saying is that there are only perspectives. There are only particulars in the universe. He's a radical empiricist. There are only parts and no whole, right? And then at the end, when he's talking about another objection that someone might make, saying, but I know consciousness. Consciousness, this constant witness, this constant base on which everything rests, a person might say, you can intuit the existence of this thing. And James at the end says, my reply to this is my last word. And I greatly grieve that to many it will sound materialistic. I cannot help that, however, for I too have my intuitions and must obey them. Let the case be what it may in others. I am as confident as I am of anything that in myself, the stream of thinking, which I recognize emphatically as a phenomenon, is only a careless name for what when scrutinized, reveals itself to consist chiefly in the stream of my breathing. So what he's saying is that the idea of pneuma, right? Pneuma means breath, right? I think it has a, that connotation in Greek. Yeah. The idea of spirit, the idea of thought, the idea of uh, that diaphanous something that is always present is basically just an abstraction of the act of breathing. And that's his intuition. He's not arguing for this. He's just saying, that's my intuition. But what it implies to me is that there is no consciousness without a body. There is, no, there is mm. nothing outside the pure experience, quote unquote, let's call it living matter of the universe. And the, the reason why matter is not a good word is because matter is always obtained when you subtract from it spirit or thought or meaning. He's saying that matter always at every level already contains meaning. Like it makes me think of the pictures, uh, the Russian probe that went to Venus, have you read a oh, book yeah. that took one photo or one or two photos of the surface of Venus before melting down because yeah. of the heat? That photo is, I think, probably the most haunting photograph I've ever seen. Because this, not only is it something that we can't see, it's something that we were not meant to see. It's like, against all odds, this photo was taken. And what it shows us is a landscape. There are rocks, there's a sky, there's a place, there's a space that has everything that we would attribute to a mental image, to an experienced image, but it's taken in a context that is completely non-human. And of course, we've already gone over the argument whereby, oh, the photograph is just a kind of substitute for our consciousness. But that's not that obvious when you think about it. I mean, there's no reason why a photo would reveal precisely the same object that you see, right? It's like yeah. a photo could have revealed everything. It could just be like a dog can look at a, supposedly dogs can't make out two dimensional images. But the idea is that the surface of Venus exists right now. And what James is calling on us to think, I believe, is that it exists as it would if you were there. So that, for example, a stone rolling down a hill can roll down a hill without anyone seeing it just like you would naively think in the everyday. But he's saying that's only possible. A stone can only roll down a hill when no one's looking if stones and hills are fundamental to the material out of which the universe is made. Not, mm. just, not just atoms making a stone from a particular perspective, but the stone as stone. That's a crazy, crazy idea, I find, because it means that there is no substrate. There is nothing out of which the universe is made. It is made out of pure experience, but pure experience without consciousness. Pure experience as, in, in this sense, the rock in itself is experiencing. 
that the rolling of the rock down the hill is experienced. There's a subjective objective thing going on even there to the hill. The hill is the subject down whose flank the rock rolls. There is always that splitting off of thought and thing happens at every level, whether humans are there or not. Panpsychism, really, in the end. I yeah. Think. Well, this reminded me of, and I can't pretend that I understand Whitehead's philosophy very well, and I've only really encountered it in uh, Stephen Shafir's book. What is it? The Universe of Things? Yeah, fantastic um, book. Yeah. Which is a great book. Uh, but... I don't know. This is a shot in the dark, but perhaps this is something like what Whitehead means by enjoyment when he says that the quality of all things, everything that exists from, I don't know, from frickin' quarks up to galaxies or whatever, is that all of them, everything that exists has a quality of self-enjoyment. Yeah. And, and I take that to be kind of what James is on about here. There's a great book by Jean-Paul Sartre, The Transcendence of the Ego. Have you read that? It's a short book. Nope. We should do a show on it someday. It's really good. And, cool. um, you know, Sartre is not seen as someone who, like, he's got a bad rap. I don't know why. I, I really like him. I kind of see him as kind of the Andy Warhol of philosophy for some reason. I just <laughs> That's an interesting he, way he of putting this, it. He had this really strong pop quality, which works against you, I think, in, in the academy, ultimately, because it makes Certainly. you look like you were dumbing shit down. And he's been accused of basically just like badly translating Heidegger's ideas into French and that sort of thing. I don't know about that. I think he's pretty interesting. But um, in The Transcendence of the Ego, he argues that ego, the, the self, is inherently diffuse. It's diaphanous. It's always transcending the situation in which it occurs. It's never anywhere. He has this great passage. He writes, When I run after a streetcar, when I look at the time, when I'm absorbed in contemplating a portrait, there is no I. In fact, I am then plunged into the world of objects. It is they which constitute the unity of my consciousness. It is they which present themselves with values, with attractive and repellent qualities. But me? I have disappeared. I have annihilated myself. There is no place for me at this level. And this is not a matter of chance due to a momentary lapse of attention, but happens because of the very structure of consciousness. What he's saying is that you can never, ever, ever take consciousness out of an embodied moment, of a mm. body, of a mind, of, a, of, of time, of space. These things are absolutely structurally integral to consciousness. So you can't play that chicanery that trick of sliding consciousness underneath phenomena because because you can't have consciousness without phenomena you can't have consciousness without time consciousness is always an eye seeing a hand touching uh you know yes he, and, and and james in the in the essay even argues that thoughts have extension you know descartes famously argued that thoughts were unextended but he says well no you can have angry thoughts or heavy thoughts or a thought of red might not be red in itself, but you can't separate it from the experience of red as extension of, the, of an extended time-bound experience of redness. You and might also, want to explain what Descartes means by extension. Ultimately, I guess you could say that it's something that exists in time and space. It requires time and space in order to exist, whereas thoughts don't occur at that level for Descartes. Okay, But, but of course, you can't you can't think of anything without time and space. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So even thought has extension for James. And also he makes another point that when you have thoughts, those thoughts are no different. They're, they're the same as things. That when you think of a room, the room confronts you like any object would. It's not inside you. 
the so-called inner world of the imagination, the inner world of mind, is just as outside of us as the physical world. Yeah. Um, you can make mathematical discoveries, which are made of p- pure thought, but they impose themselves with all the necessity of physical laws. Like one plus one equals two, not just because you decided it, it's because the mind is bound by its own laws and it, it is its own world. So he's bringing everything down to one level, but one level which is not just matter, but matter, always matter plus thought, matter plus meaning. And that you yeah. can't take one, you can't have one without the other. One thing about James's thought, not just in this essay, but James's thought generally, that makes it interesting to me is that it is a form of philosophy that while it is at no point explicitly magical, except perhaps in his like confidences of a psychical researcher, uh, things where he's talking about psychical research, um, it's never explicitly magical, but you can really easily see the use of his ideas for magical thought or ways that magical styles of thought can be rationalized to some extent or at least dignified by James's pragmatic philosophy. And this yeah. is and just what you say, the idea that we're used to the idea like thoughts and things are made of completely different stuff again. Um, they have no relationship to one another except a kind of representative relationship, but they're fundamentally different orders of thing in that things are things and thoughts aren't. And essentially, James is saying, well, no, thoughts are things too. He has an example, actually. It's an example from a piece of somebody named Münsterberg, and I'm I'm not clever enough to know who Münsterberg may be. I love that his, passage. Yeah, his Grundzüge. And James gives you a whole page of this that he quotes. I may only think of my objects, says Professor Munsterberg. Yet, in my living thought, they stand before me exactly as perceived objects would do, no matter how different the two ways of apprehending them may be in their genesis. The book here lying on the table before me, and the book in the next room, of which I think, and which I mean to get are both, in the same sense, given realities for me, realities which I acknowledge and of which I take account. If you agree that the perceptual object is not an idea within me, but that percept and thing, as indistinguishably one, are really experienced there, outside, you ought not to believe that the merely thought of object is hid away inside the thinking subject. The object of which I think and of whose existence I take cognizance without letting it now work upon my senses, occupies its definite place in the outer world as much as does the object which I directly see. And if you're wondering how this can possibly be true, his example of a book before me, so right now as I speak, I have my Library of America edition of William James' writings, 1902 to 1910. There's another book sitting behind me, that I mean to pick up when we are done with our conversation. I can't see it. I have a memory of the book. I'm pretty sure I left it on the coffee table that's right behind me right now, Uh, but I'm sort of strapped in and I can't turn my head, but I'll check up on it later. But the fact that this book exists only in my head right now, for me, like, of course, I'm not saying that the book just vanished behind my back, right? I fully believe that that book is still materially there on the table behind me. But the point is that in my experience right now, here and now, as I speak into this microphone, pointing my head, pointing the other direction, the book exists only as a thought. And yet that thought will, number one, it's actuated this phase of the conversation. I'm talking about something that isn't physically present to me, but that thing that is only a thought is nevertheless changing my behavior. It has consequences. And when I get up later and pick it up and go read it, then my behavior will be focused on an object that is shifting from being a purely mental phenomenon to a mental and physical phenomenon, an actual physical object that I'm holding in my hand. But my behavior is being conditioned sometimes by a thought, sometimes by the object, but these two things flow imperceptibly into one another. If you really get down with that idea, then you're going to have no trouble understanding how magic 
can be said to work in the world. If, for example, you participate in Donald Trump's worldview and you read his stream of mendacious tweets, you know, just lies, things that he's just making up, they're lies, but the lies are made true to an extent by the fact that you're reading them, believing them, and most importantly, acting upon those beliefs. And then Donald J. Trump can can affect a real material change in the world from just bullshit ideas in yeah. his head. Those ideas become true because we're acting on them. We're all acting on them. Even if you hate Donald Trump, uh, your negation of his ideas is still acting upon those ideas, which has this weird way of making those ideas true. And there, I just explained to you why it is so horrible to live in the United States right now, because you see magic abroad in the world constantly conjuring into existence horrible things that didn't exist before. So, I mean, this is maybe a dark example, right? Not a very positive or happy example. But, like, the point is, though, that one one context is just, you know, political speech or, like, a, a political strategy or maybe an advertising strategy. From another point of view, you can realize, like, oh, no, that's practical magic. It's magic because it is doing the fundamental thing that magic does, which is if magic exists at all, if it has any meaning at all, it is the business of affecting material change through ideas. And maybe the Harry Potter version of that is I think of something, I have an intention, like I want to hurt you, and I say cruciatus or whatever the fake Latin word is in the Harry Potter universe that makes somebody hurt. And that suddenly that feeling will be in your body. So an intention of mine will be realized in the material world. You know, that's the line that goes from Harry Potter magic, which, you know, is kind of not realistic, perhaps, all the way to something that's very real, which is Donald Trump's unshakable grasp of the American imagination. But you, you don't... You know, whether you love him or hate him, you know, those are thoughts that have reality. They're real. They're agents in the world, just like you and I are agents in the world. Absolutely, but I'm, I have a question there, because do you not believe in psychical and psychic phenomena? Do I do, not you believe do. in them? Uh, just, uh, at least, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've experienced right. them. So, uh, you know, my certainly my own experience is that, yeah, psychical phenomena so exist. I, I, I obviously agree with that. But um, so that would uh, that would mean that something like maybe not as simplistic as what Harry Potter proposes, but something like that is also true, that that if thoughts are actual forces and if they're not inside your head, then thoughts can maybe have material effects as well. At the level of pure intention. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've discussed this. So yeah. I, I was, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I was just trying to like nuance what you yeah. said, because yeah, there is the, the rhetoric of Trump and how that affects people. You can make an argument that, well, you could call that magic or you just call it psychology. You just call it language. But beyond that, the conception of thoughts as things enables us to entertain the possibility of psychic phenomena of thoughts having direct by their intentional force having direct consequences in the material world which is not something we can just dismiss offhand i think right certainly not so th what you just read that 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 munsterberg quote and what you just said reminded me of our dnd episode where we talked about the reality of fantasy right or the reality of illusion mm -hmm. when you create a thought form. And this is a, a Victorian concept, the, the concept of the thought form. I don't know if it's Madame Blavatsky or those that theosophical gang. Yeah, the theosophists got it in turn from... the from, Tibetans, right? Yeah, from what of Tibetan Buddhism they were able to glean, given the sources available to them. Right, the, the idea of the tulpa, right? That the, a thought yeah. is not in your head. A thought sufficiently charged can become a force in the world. Can materialize yeah. out there in the world. Yeah, so absolutely. So that, that idea... In the context of our D&D &D episode, what we were trying to get at is that the acts of imagination have real power and that they're not just subjective things, like that the imagination is not subjective. There's a beautiful conception of time in, in Bergson and Deleuze, which I've always loved. Proust kind of meant his uh, his book In Search of Lost Time as a kind of like um, proof of concept of this this understanding of time. For Deleuze and for Bergson before him, when you remember something from the past, 
you're not just concocting a mental image of something. You are actually perceiving into the past. That the past is insistently or implicitly present in you so that you can actually see it. Like if you think of time as a process of constant accrual or accumulation, and we're just right now at the, the conical point, the knife point of time. Well, if time has a pyramidal structure extending from this present moment down, then the entire history of the universe is implicitly present in this moment because everything causally is connected from the first, first event right up until now. Everything's there. Everything is contained in this moment. If you think of time that way, and if you separate the idea that the mind and the brain are the same thing, then you can easily picture how an act of remembrance, an act of remembering would be a moving back in time to see something in the past. Because the past in this understanding, under this philosophy, the past is present now. It's not something that's gone. It's actually here. Yeah, because we're acting upon it. If I burn my hand on this hot stove in the past, I'm going to avoid putting my hand on the stove in right. the present. So something that happened in the past totally informs my behavior. Yeah, not only that, but the, the protozoa that produced your you know, great, great, great times one million grandfather is also present in the moment because that germ or that microbe is essential to what makes this moment right now possible. It's part of the causal chain that brought this moment about. And it's only from the perspective of an isolated mind, only in the impoverished perspective of mind as brain, that you could say that the past doesn't exist anymore. That, in fact, at the objective level, the entire past can be present all the time. That's Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. Although one problem with that is that your memories might be faulty. So for, you know, I mean... But so could, you, um, so could your vision, right? Yeah, like you, you can say, well, the past is present in memory, but your memory is, I mean, there's a lot of scientific research that shows that memory works by making a copy, not of an event in the past, but of your previous memory. You're constantly recreating the memory. We're not entirely sure how, but it's not as if there's some kind of mental filing cabinet where the memory is a kind of a true report of something that happened and then you filed away and you can pull that out of the filing cabinet anytime you want to remember it. It doesn't work yeah. like that. What happens is that every memory, and I find this a kind of interesting poetic idea, every memory is itself an original. It's never a copy. It's always a newly created event. And that clearly is complicates the idea that you're playing with, the idea that the past is always part of the present. Well, it can be, but remembered past is always a creation in the present. Absolutely. What I'm saying? It's always actualized in the present. Bergson would say that it's virtually present in its objective wholeness, but it, it, in its actualization, mm -hmm. it can only actualize under specific circumstances in an experience and therefore never actualizes in its fullness or very rarely in its fullness. But you can have total, you can have total yeah. recall in Bergson, like Proust's the, Ma the Madeleine, you know, when Proust eats the Madeleine and then he gets total recall of, of the moment as it was. That's, that's, that's yeah. a magical idea. It's not, it's not an idea that's garnered any support in science, but it's worth entertaining as a possibility. And you could argue, just as you could argue, you can have faulty memories. Well, you can have faulty vision, right? Like you can see mirages or you can not see or you can press against your eyeball and see things double. That doesn't mean they actually become double. Mm -hmm. So like if, if memory is a kind of sense organ or some kind of sensual process, then you could argue that a, a faulty memory is just a, the past badly perceived. And also there's also the fact that since the past doesn't exist actually, but only virtually, it's all mixed up with the other virtual realm of imagination. So that you can imagine the past right. and then it's, it's existing in the same sea as the imaginal that surrounds every physical moment. And therefore, it's all mixed up together, which is why the past always dissolves into legend and myth. If you go far enough back, right. you know, but that's that again is hardly an argument for the unreality of thought and imagination. It's just saying that imagination and thought, whether it's just purely the imaginal in the Corbin sense of the term, or just the past and its virtual existence, that these things are essential to existence and to reality as such. They're just part of the picture. Yeah. Well, James says, I think, in this essay, that all of these different 
apprehensions of reality in the past and all these things that spin off of reality, for example, false memories or, you know, fantasies, imaginings that get taken for the real thing, um, every act of recollection that reconstitutes the memory but changes it maybe in, in some way, um, these are all simply acts of pure experience. The pure experience is what yeah. it is. There are countless acts that can be taken upon it. Yes, exactly. The universe is ultimately made of acts, of events, of pure experience. Those events, uh, they exist as thoughts and as things. The distinction between thoughts and things ultimately is just an epistemological distinction, not an ontological distinction. The second part of that Munsterberg quote is interesting. I'm just going to read it. What is true of the here and there, and then he's referring to what you read earlier about the book in the other room being just as real as a thought as the book in front of him. He says, right. what is true of the here and the there is also true of the now and the then. I know of the thing which is present and perceived, but I know also of the thing which yesterday was but is no more and which I only remember. Both can determine my present conduct. Both are parts of the reality of which I keep account. It is true that of much of the past I am uncertain, just as I am uncertain of much of what is present, if it be but dimly perceived. But the interval of time does not in principle alter my relation to the object, does not transform it from an object known into a mental state. The things in the room here which I survey, and those in my distant home of which I think, the things of this minute and those of my long-vanished boyhood, influence and decide me alike with the reality which my experience of them directly feels." They both make up my real world and make it directly. They do not have first to be introduced to me and mediated by ideas which now and here arise within me. This not-me character of my recollections and expectations does not imply that the external objects of which I am aware in those experiences should necessarily be there also for others. The objects of dreamers and hallucinated persons are wholly without general validity, but even were they centaurs and golden mountains, they still would be off there, in fairyland and not inside of ourselves. So there's a, there's like a thin end of the wedge to interpret that and a thick end of the wedge to interpret that. The thin end is that even a thought that's not real has effects in the world, right? That even if I think of a dragon, well, there is no real dragon, but the dragon can influence me to do X, Y, Z. But the other way of thinking about it is that the imagination is, and this is implicit in what he's writing, the imagination is outside of us. It's not something inside of us. An act of imaginative creation is, on one level, also an act of perception. So that the stuff of the imagination, that malleable stuff that can f spin dragons and unicorns and all the rest, is just as real as the stuff of physical matter. Okay, there's a couple of things I would say in response. First of all, I was very interested by the very end of the passage you read where he says, even were there centaurs and golden mountains, they would still be off there in fairyland and not inside of ourselves. I'm really interested in that inside of ourselves. The idea that there is an inner and an outer, that there are some experiences we call inner and there are some we call outer the idea that there can be an inner meaning of things and an outer meaning of things, the idea of containing, like these are really basic metaphors of thought. And if I'm thinking about what is the, the, the modern epistem, I talk about this a lot on the show, the style of thought that is cultivated more or less unconsciously in modernity. There's a kind of invincible self-regard that we have where we imagine that we at last, and we alone among all people who have ever existed, that we possess the true idea of what reality is. 
now that we have science, right? This is, you know, how someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks that uh, there will never be any substantial alteration of our world picture because we finally got it right. I find that a little hard to believe. <laughs> um, so do I. One of the things that makes that modern worldview, that taken-for-granted worldview, what I like to call the naive construal of modernity, which is a somewhat Charles Taylor-esque expression, which is to say the construal we have of how reality works that we don't think is even a construal. We just think it's the way things are. One of the fundamental structuring metaphors of that style of thought, of the naive construal of modernity, is the idea of the container, of things being in things. And one of my basic beefs with the with this way of thinking is the idea of the universe as something like a big warehouse, you know, just like a big container. And in that universe, there's different kinds of stuff. And the whole picture of subjectivity and objectivity depends upon this idea because then the idea is like, say, as a scholar, like I'm a professor. And if I say, well, I'm in the business of objective knowledge, right? I only want to know the objective truth of a phenomenon and I have no interest in someone's subjective experience. So like I'm a music historian and so I'm interested in the compositional structure of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. I'm totally uninterested in what anybody might say they feel about or how it makes them feel. That's just subjective stuff, right? The problem I have with that whole way of thinking, that, that classically modern way of thinking, is it approaches the universe as if it was just a big warehouse full of objects and as if my job then is to go in and investigate that warehouse, find out where all the objects are stored, what shelves they're on, but to leave a sharp boundary between myself and this enclosure that I find myself in so that as a scholar I can't just go putting new objects in there or I can't put a new object in there and then say that I just found it there right right but this idea that there's a universe full of like content you know numerable co content yeah numerable contents um, and that we are picking our way through that universe and we'll find some things there and other things we won't find there because it's not part of the inventory. I find this idea really pernicious, but it's an idea that is so hardwired in our thinking that it, for example, when we think about thoughts, as Mr. Berg is saying in that passage, we think of purely fantastical notions like centaurs and golden mountains. Well, those are locked away in my head. Right, I can share them. I can draw a picture of a centaur or whatever, but the centaur doesn't have any objective existence. It's not one of the things on the shelves in that big warehouse of stuff, right? And then the human mind just becomes like the reflection of that warehouse. Oh, okay, so where is it? It's in the warehouse that is my imagination. It's a thing in there. Yeah. But this whole geometry of in there yeah. is itself a metaphysics i'm not saying it's a bad metaphysics i think it's a problem when it leads to viewing the world as as you've put it in another of our episodes standing reserve it's just an inventory of stuff for us to make use of as we will for our own power and pleasure this is how you end up with an environmental crisis a world that's being suffocated under a mountain of trash because we just view the world as raw materials for whatever the whatever we want to yeah. do to it so i think that there are ethical problems with this style of thought but all on its own i'm not saying it's bad because it's a metaphysical conceit i'm just saying it's a metaphysical conceit and as such it allows us to do certain things it has affordances we can think certain thoughts more readily but it makes other thoughts really hard to think and the idea that james has that thoughts are kind of like things there are other objects in the world so which means that centaurs in some sense exist that idea is really hard for us to wrap our heads around if only because that little mental architecture of enclosures of containers of things that contain things well, you're not going to find centaurs in the warehouse that I've imagined in my head, so therefore centaurs can't exist. 
you know, James is actually showing us a way out of that style of thought, but it is exceedingly difficult for us to wrap our heads around it. And I would argue it is because, for one thing, we have this metaphysics of, like, ideas or minds have to be put somewhere. So the idea, for example, that mind is simply a function of brain. That's a basic idea in uh, scientific naturalism or materialism, that mind and brain are basically the same thing, that minds are what brains create, just as stomach secretes acid, right? right? I like your metaphor of the container. It's a good summation of what rationalism technically is. Like rationalism is, is a philosophy that sees the world as a whole made up of parts, so the, the goal should always be to figure out what the whole is, what contains it, what explains the parts. Whereas empiricism, classically, is to see the world primarily as parts that add up to a whole. But James's radical empiricism is that, no, it's just parts. There's just parts. There is no container. There is no container. There's no fundamental yeah. thing that holds everything. That the universe is made out of pure experiences. Pure experience, he says at the end, is not a stuff. It's innately, intrinsically a multiplicity. It is one only in the sense that it is always multiple. <laughs> right? And the idea that thoughts are not in the mind, to make the move to say that thoughts are just in the mind, requires some metaphysical maneuvers that are based on assumptions that I don't think daily life warrants necessarily. Like daily life does warrant a distinction between thoughts and things, but it doesn't warrant a negation of the reality of thought or for that matter, negation of the reality of things. We live in a world of thoughts and things and we, there are all kinds of thoughts. For example, the United States of America is a thought, not a thing that is very real. There's a, there's a great poem. I can't, help but suggest that I read it by Wallace Stevens called The Postcard from the Volcano, which talks about this in a very poignant way, I find. Do you mind if I read it? It's short. By no means. So this is a poem by Wallace Stevens, Postcard from the Volcano. Children picking up our bones will never know that these were once as quick as foxes on the hill, and that in autumn, when the grapes made sharp air sharper by their smell, these had a being breathing frost. And least we'll guess that with our bones we left much more, left what still is, the look of things, left what we felt at what we saw. The spring clouds blow above the shuttered mansion house, beyond our gate and the windy sky cries out illiterate despair. We knew for long the mansion's look, and what we said of it became a part of what it is. Children, still weaving budded orioles, will speak our speech and never know will say of the mansion that it seems as if he that lived there left behind a spirit storming in blank walls, a dirty house in a gutted world, a tatter of shadows peaked to white, smeared with the gold of the opulent sun. And what I like about this poem is that he's showing how the narrator lives in this house and will die in this house, and then people in the future will be there. But everything that he thought of, everything that he lived in this house will be part of what the house is. That all of our thoughts, that all, yeah. all that we banish in the name of like materialism, all we reduce to nothing, all these airy fairy ideas we have, these memories and these fantasies are actually just particles in the cosmos every bit as much as the brick and mortar that makes up the mansion house. And that to encounter a thing is to encounter its entire past and to encounter a world is to encounter not just its physical makeup, but the thoughts and dreams of everything that, that exists within it. That all those things add up to non-totalizable whole that is in fact inherently and infinitely open. A multiplicity of events. A cosmic something in which anything can happen. this idea of the problem of containers like the container metaphor 
the idea that mind is in the brain, that thoughts are contained in the mind that's in the brain, that mind can only be contained, you know, between our ears, that you're not going to find mind abroad in the universe, in the world, in the trees or whatever. Um, that idea actually makes this poem harder to think because like somebody might listen to that poem and listen to your beautiful exegesis on it and say, yeah, okay, fine. All of the experiences in that house are part of the universe, but like, how are they accessible? I can't see Wallace Stevenson's house the way he saw it. It's not available to me. If those thoughts, perceptions, moods, emotions, if those exist still, then where are they? If they were in Wallace Stevens' head, well, he's been dead for a long time and his brains have turned to soil. So where are they? And, and we get hung up on that question. If thoughts, phantasms, notions, conceptual manifolds, if those are real, if they are, you know, they're not materially real. I mean, James isn't saying there's no difference but he's saying that the differences are very easy to overstate and that there is a fundamental continuity between things and ideas of things. You know, if that's the case, then where are they? And that very question, where, already, you would only ask that question if you would already bought in on the idea of the brain is container of mind, the mind is container of memories, the universe is container of minds like ours and so on. Do you see what I'm saying? And I mean, like somebody could say, all of this is nonsense. I'll tell you what a thought is. A thought is a specific pattern of electrical discharges in the brain. We can see that. We can see, I mean, admittedly, our technology isn't perfect, but it'll get better. We will be able to see in greater and greater resolution. We can see thoughts in people's heads. We can see them form. We can know all kinds of things about them that the subjective thinker of those thoughts can't know about them. We have all kinds of data. We have empirical, I mean, you know, fuck James' so-called radical empiricism. We have actual empiricism. We have data that shows that thoughts are exactly that, electrical discharges. And they're moments in time. And when they're gone, they're gone. They don't exist in any part of the universe. How do you like them apples, Martell? <laughs> I think we're going so-called J.F. Martel. But I think we're going back to what you were saying earlier about consciousness eliciting certain types of events. So people who have been digging the podcast have been experiencing synchronicities. And that goes back to what we've said before about the minute you get interested in this stuff. And Eric Davis talked about this. The minute you get interested in this stuff, it starts happening. So you start to notice it, let's say. And they also multiply, perhaps. But the idea is that, again, what your objection or the hypothetical objection you just put forward is implying that experience is synonymous with consciousness. In the poem, uh, Stevens writes, children will speak our speech and never know. What it means is that there's a whole bunch of thoughts and ideas and symbols and images that work through us and on us, but we never are conscious of it. The unconscious isn't so much a kind of like storage room in the brain. It's actually a kind of natural stratum of nature in which the imaginal exists. So you have to buy into the idea that the imagination is real before any of this makes sense. If the imagination yeah. is real, then it can be acting on us all the time without us being conscious of it. Because we've separated yeah. thought and we've separated experience from consciousness. So how many times does it happen that you do something and only realize you were doing it after you started? It happens all the time. I've made like pots of coffee without being conscious of it. Um, yeah, it's true. And consciousness is just an impoverishment of what thought is. I mean, how many times do you, you, mm. uh, you're writing a paper and you're stuck and you go, I'll sleep on it. And you wake up and the idea is there. I mean, thought occurs outside of consciousness. And that's the really weird thing. It's that, and that, that's, the, that's the basic um, argument behind theories of the unconscious. And that's the only way that I can make yeah. sense of those theories. It's that everything is thinking all the time. Nietzsche has this great passage. I can't remember which book it's from, where it says, 
we shouldn't say I or you think. We should say that it thinks. That thought is something that happens and that as a process in a world of processes, we as individuals participate in thought. But thought is always happening. And that seems to be the only way to close the gap between the dichotomy or the, the dead end binary of thought, of dualism, of thought versus matter, is that just to say that these two things are actually part of one thing. And maybe we can never experience that one thing directly and see it for what it is because there is no whole. But okay, I'm going to come up with another challenge to this idea, which maybe is a little harder. So, okay, so what you just said is very interesting to me, and I agree with it. You say that consciousness is just a narrow band of thinking, and thinking is something that extends in every direction infinitely. Consciousness is the little slice of what we're conscious of, and then there's thinking. Probably what we're calling thinking is probably what other people mean by consciousness very often when they talk about consciousness in a sort of spiritual sense, some kind of higher knowing. But that thinking that goes on forever and that we are like the blind men and the elephant. We're blindfolded and we're touching different parts of this thinking that goes on forever. And we see bits of it. And based on the very partial impressions we receive, we say, oh, it's, it's really this or it's really that. Then that suggests exactly the same model of reality and occlusion that we were trying to run away from in the first place. The idea that we don't like in idealism and materialism that makes the world just a dim echo of some realer reality that is not accessible to our senses. So the materialist will say, well, you just think that you're in love, but actually it's chemicals in your brain and it's just trying to get you to reproduce. So discounting your experience of love, for instance, an idealist might say, <laughs> I reread one of your rejoinders to Bernardo Castro over at your blog at Reclaiming Art. And there's a photo you have of famine victims from, I think, the Ukrainian famine with the sardonic caption. No, those aren't protruding rib cages. Those are merely ripples in the mind at large. And so your complaint is that idealism takes suffering. And like where it becomes kind of indecent is where it takes suffering, like the starving children in the Ukrainian famine, and treats them simply as counters in some kind of like unfolding mind that we mistake for being a tragedy. But actually, it all makes sense somehow on some higher level. And you find that, and I agree with you, a rather morally repugnant move. And we've said right at the beginning of this, what unites materialism and idealism is a tendency to want to... You know, it's just like I said before, you know, there's always a reason not to give us the world as given, the object, you know. And we like James's radical empiricism because he gives us the world back, right? He says there is no stuff of experience. There's only redness and cherryness and grassness. There's only just the million and one things, the manifold, right? But the problem is that when we're saying that the imaginal is this great, true dimension of reality that we can only perceive partially, incompletely, and defectively, aren't we finding our way back to a mysterious, transcendent substance that is not the world as given? Do you see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I, I don't think so. Because, first of all, because the theory places the imaginal and the physical on the same level, right? So there's no there's mm. no fundamental stuff. It's not like the universe emerges out of the imaginal. It's that the universe is imaginal in itself. So I would say it's precisely the opposite, that there's, in this theory, nothing is ever occluded, other than things are contingently occluded, just like you can't see your entire house. Right? Even if you're standing in front of it, you're just seeing the front of your house, you have to infer right. the back of the house. It's the same mm -hmm. in the imaginal world. You can never see the whole psyche. You can only have discrete, separate thoughts. But every thought is fundamental. Every thought is, in a sense, the whole picture, because the whole is just parts. So, like, when you're looking down your toilet, taking a pee, you're looking at the Big Bang. 
the whole thing is happening now. It's like creation is what happens in experience at every time. It expresses itself as an innately, intrinsically multiplicitous event that is always unfolding. There's nothing ontologically behind the experiences. There is just an exploration of appearance that keeps expanding as you go, just like the physical universe. So I would say that the imaginal is perfectly analogous with the physical universe. Just as you can set out across the ocean to discover a new continent, you can set out into the imagination and discover new thoughts. Does that make sense? This is, this is it totally makes sense. In fact, I think that this ties back to Dogen. Mm. Because Dogen, I think one big connection between Dogen and us, he too is very concerned not to allow this kind of split between what seems and what is. Yeah. It's very important for him to say nothing is hidden, which is why Dogen is not an esoteric writer. He's not a, an occult writer because he's insisting that whatever puzzling weird thing he's talking about he's talking about like emptiness or he's talking about you know when all things are buddha dharma when all things are truly enlightenment one bright jewel whatever figurative language he's also insisting that this is also right here right now that there's not a hair's breadth of difference between enlightenment and just going about your day, taking your dog for a walk, cleaning out the gutters, mowing the grass. All of that is perfectly enlightenment. And of course, you know, you want to ask, where is enlightenment to be found? Surely it's not here. Surely I have to practice, I have to meditate 10,000 hours or however many hours Malcolm Gladwell suggests. Uh, and then I will be perfectly enlightened and somehow the world will be different then. Right. right. It'll look like the cover of a Yes album. You know, <laughs> it'll, it'll be some crazy sci-fi world, right? right? And and Dogen is always at every point throughout all of his writings, including Genjikon, trying to combat this idea and trying to say, no, the world in enlightenment, when all things are Buddha Dharma, is exactly this world right here and now. Yeah. And yet... <laughs> And, and yet, I don't know, it just looks like the, the, the one looking around me. Doesn't look that enlightened to me. Looks like exactly the same shit I see every day, right? right? And so this is very puzzling. And yet, I think that puzzlement is one of Dogen's great themes. Maybe it's his great theme. And I also think that is the intellectual matter that lies before us as well trying to wrap our heads around the idea of the imaginal is trying to wrap our heads around an idea of something that always is. It's not hiding. If I tell you, oh, I've got this great secret, it's the imaginal, then I'm actually being kind of a huckster because it's almost as if I'm trying to sell you something you already have, you know, which actually is a joke people make all the time in, uh, in Zen. It's uh, commonly said that Zen is like selling water down by the river. Yeah. You know, I'm just selling you reality that already exists and is not one hair different from what you see every moment. And that's sort of what we're saying about the imaginal. Yes. But at the same time, there's that side. And then there's the other side, which is that by destroying that totalizing instinct, you know, that you might just call the instinct to judge in the sense that of, of judging what is possible and what is not, of deciding that what you know is enough for you to judge the entire universe. In, in killing that mm -hmm. instinct, you wake up to a world that is capable of anything. And therefore, passionate engagement in such a world finds this new adventurous justification. It becomes an adventure. And that's why I think parapsychology, for instance, is such an exciting scientific endeavor. It's probably the most important one. The problem isn't we need to figure out what the world's made of. The problem is... What else is this world capable of? What else could it reveal that would astonish us? It's the, the realization that if every moment is the Big Bang, if every moment is the thing, is enlightenment, then there is no way for us to contain that. It's like it accounts, it, yes. it can include anything. And therefore, the world becomes, it opens up, the universe opens up to just an infinitude of possibilities. And therefore, research, passionate engagement, everything find their justification. Nirvana, in a sense, becomes the 
adventurous engagement in a world of infinite possibility. So it's like the opposite of occlusion. It's the world as absolute pure revelation. subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>